The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. I believe in the Holy Spirit and I do believe in the goodness of God and uh, I pray that that comes across really clear today in today's message and, and certainly these, these times are, uh, are different um, for us and uh, uh, I hope you'll bear with me because this is really different <laughs> looking at 12 people or so and uh, uh, anyway we just trust God with, uh, with this whole message today. Um, uh, as, as I've been working on preparing the message for this week I realized <coughs> what our pastor Terry goes through. <laughs> um, I think this is my sixth time preaching and uh, I spent so much time um, especially, especially this week, just struggling with, God, what, what do you want to say today to your people at home or here? And uh, I, trust, uh, I trust he's going to speak this morning. Uh, we have been and uh, we'll be again today continuing in our, um, our series in Genesis as we started that this past fall. Uh, and we're going to be looking into chapter 15 uh, this morning. And, uh, but before we do that, before we do that and we take a look at God's covenant that he reaffirmed to Abraham, I do feel it's both prudent and necessary to take a few extra minutes this morning to address the topic that is gripping the world's attention, and that is the growing pandemic of the coronavirus, these are unusual times. And these are unusual circumstances. And the crisis uh, growing, uh, as it is around the planet right now, seems to be exceeding any of those in our lifetime um, on this planet, and uh, many are the fears surrounding it, logical and illogical, that are spiraling from it. My desire this morning is to address twofold, and I'm gonna try to be as brief as possible on this, but I hope you'll, I hope you'll bear with me because this, today's message may end up being a little bit longer than normal because, because I felt very strongly that this should be addressed here uh, this morning. And so, uh, so this morning, oh, this is backwards. Can we go right back to the... There we are, thank you. <clears throat> this morning, uh, I wish to address it twofold. First, from a theological perspective to help make sense of the coronavirus with an open Bible in front of us. And secondly, from a practical perspective for governing the believer's response to the world in which they live. Regarding the theological perspective, I lean on someone much wiser than I uh, John Piper, a theologian that I've come to deeply respect and admire for his biblical insight and also has a heart of a pastor when he delivers that insight. Uh, Desiring God had a, has a weekly uh, podcast called uh, Ask Pastor John. And this past week, uh, they, they had a, a session of it that was addressing how do we make sense of coronavirus. Uh, and I'm going to greatly abbreviate that uh, uh, that uh, session 
but I want to point out that you can, you can check it out on desiringgod.org at some point in the future. Not right now, okay? So just, just hold that till later. Um, and I'll be reading uh, some of the excerpts of that with some of my own uh, injected. Um, in situations like this, it's very important that we, that we take a look into God's word to see and understand. Um, and so anyway, the, the session opened, Tony Ranke was interviewing John Piper and he, he said this, he said, as I'm sure you're aware, coronavirus continues to grab headlines as it spreads across the globe. It's now a multinational epidemic moving toward a global pandemic and I think that's probably almost been decided at this point. Leaders all over have been tasked with slowing down and containing the virus. Some are hopeful this can be done. Others claim it's futile, that it can't be stopped, that it's gonna to continue to spread for months. There's a lot of speculation afoot. Less theoretically, world markets are tumbling. The Dow Jones tumbled throughout the week, took a nosedive as international work stoppages interrupt imports, exports, and global trade. In situations like this, it's very easy to lose faith and to live in fear of the headlines and the unknown. The response from churches have been mixed. Some continue with Sunday services with added precautions. Some have suspended church services altogether, in person, that is, like we have. Some pastors are promising, if you are a believer, God will not allow the virus to touch you. Other pastors are saying this is God's judgment on sinful cities and arrogant nations. Pastor John, how do Christians with open Bibles make sense of a viral epidemic like this one? Uh, John Piper had a few prefacing comments and my own comments this morning is that I realize that as I'm addressing this, we're talking about lives. We're talking about human beings thousands who have lost their lives around this world. And likely many, many more will. And each of those human beings is a created in the image of God. And that has worth and value. And those who have passed away leave hundreds grieving. So there's hundreds of thousands of people, families and friends around this planet that are grieving those who have lost their lives. So <laughs> I take this with a lot of seriousness as I, as I read this out to you here today. Pastor John says this, let's start with an empirical historical fact and a clear Bible fact. The empirical fact is that on the Lord's Day, Sunday, December 26, 2004, over 200,000 people were killed by a tsunami in the Indian Ocean, including whole churches gathered for worship on the Lord's Day, swept away in death. That's a historical fact. That sort of thing happens to Christians as long as there has been Christians. Now, the biblical fact, Mark 4.41, even the wind and sea obey him, Jesus. 
That is as true today as it was then. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13, 8. So, put those two facts together, the historical fact and the biblical fact, and you get this truth. Jesus could have stopped the natural disaster, and he did not in 2004. Since he always does what is wise and right and just and good, therefore, he had wise and good purposes in that disaster. I would say the same thing, therefore, about the coronavirus. Jesus has all knowledge and all authority over the natural and supernatural forces of this world. He knows exactly where the virus started and where it's going next. He has complete power to restrain it or not to. And that's what's happening. Neither sin, nor Satan, nor sickness, nor sabotage is stronger than Jesus. He's never backed into a corner. He's never forced to tolerate what he does not will. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Amen? <laughs> Psalm 33, 11. I know that you can do all things, Job says in his own repentance, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, Job 42, verse 2. So the question is not whether Jesus is overseeing, limiting, guiding, governing all disasters and all diseases of the world, including all their sinful and satanic dimensions. He is. The question is, with our Bibles open, how do we understand this? Can we make sense of it? And here are four biblical realities, and I'm, I've compacted this as much as I can. Four biblical realities that we can use as building blocks in our effort to understand and make sense of it. Number one, subjected to futility. Christians, by being saved through the gospel of God's grace, do not escape corruption, futility, and death. That is the point in Romans 8, 20 to 23. You can read that on your own reference time. The difference for Christians who trust Christ is that our experience of this corruption is not condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. The pain for us is purifying, not punitive. God has not destined us for wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. We die of disease like all men, not necessarily because of any particular sin. That's really important. We die of disease like all people because of the fall. But for those who are in Christ, the sting of death is removed. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. That's building block number one to understanding what's going on. Number two, sickness as mercy. God sometimes, and I emphasize that word, God sometimes inflicts sickness on his people as a purifying and rescuing judgment, which is not a condemnation, but an act of mercy for his saving purposes. And that point is based on 1 Corinthians 11, 29 to 32, the text that deals with misusing the Lord's Supper, which Kevin Clausen spoke on two weeks ago. It deals on the Lord's Supper, but the principle is broader. Now let this sink in. 
the Lord Jesus sometimes takes the life of his loved ones through weakness and illness. The very same words, by the way, used to describe the weaknesses and illnesses that Jesus heals in his earthly life and ministry. In Matthew 24, or sorry, Matthew 4, verse 23, 8, verse 17, and 14, verse 14. And brings them to heaven. He brings them to heaven because of the trajectory of sin in their lives that he was cutting off and saving them from. Not to punish them, but to save them. In other words, some of us die of illnesses so that we may not be condemned with the world. Verse 32. If he can do that in a few of his loved ones in Corinth, he can do it to many including by the coronavirus. And not just because of abusing the Lord's Supper, but also for other kinds of sinful trajectories. Not all, though not all death, is for a particular sin. That's building block number two. Number three, sickness is judgment. This one's not very popular in the world. Sickness is judgment. God sometimes uses disease to bring particular judgments upon those who reject him and give themselves over to sin. In Acts 12, Herod the king exalted himself in being called a god. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Acts 12, 23. God can do that with all who exalt themselves. Which means <laughs> we should be amazed that more of our leaders do not drop dead every day because of their arrogance before God and man. It is but sheer common grace and mercy from God that they don't. That's building block number three, that God can and does use illness sometimes to bring judgment upon those who reject him and his way. And number four, lastly, <clears throat> God's thunderclap. All natural disasters, whether floods, famines, locusts, tsunamis, or diseases, are a thunderclap of God's mercy, divine mercy, in the midst of judgment, calling all people everywhere to repent and realign their lives by grace with the infinite worth of the glory of God. And the basis for that building block is Luke 13, one to five. Pilate had slaughtered worshipers in the temple, and the Tower of Siloam had collapsed and killed 18 bystanders. And the crowds want to know from Jesus, just like we're being asked, okay, make sense of this, Jesus. Tell us what you think about these natural disasters and their cruelty. These people were just standing there, and now they're dead. Here's Jesus' answer in Luke 13, verses 4 to 5. Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you 
repent. He shifts from them to you. You will all likewise perish. Now, that's the message of Jesus to a world at this moment in history under the coronavirus, a message to every single human being. Me, those of you present here this morning, those of you who are listening online, and every ruler on the planet, every person who hears this is receiving a thunderclap message of God saying, repent. Repent and seek God's mercy to bring your lives, our lives, into alignment with his infinite worth. Amen? That ends that quote, and I, I appreciate your patience as we walk through that. I hope you find that helpful for dealing with the, the understanding, the theological understanding of what's going on. And secondly, and much more briefly, <laughs> I give you a practical perspective toward governing the believer's response to the world in which they live. It's a different quote, different source, and short. You ought to think this way. Very well. By God's decree, the enemy has sent us poison and deadly offal. Therefore, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then, I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance infect and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. And this last sentence. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. That was written by Martin Luther almost exactly 500 years ago amidst the bubonic plague in Europe. He wrote that in a letter called Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague in 1527. And likewise, Dave and our, and our board and the pastoral team made decisions this week, difficult decisions, to limit unnecessary risk and exposure to the virus. And at the same time, we intend to remember and practice acts of mercy toward our fellow human beings. I believe this biblical perspective, this understanding, will help us in trusting God in the, in the uncertain days ahead and also help us live with hands of mercy to those around us. Would you just join me in prayer for a moment? Our sovereign and gracious Father, God of all comfort, we come to you and to you alone. For the suffering and for the bereaved around this planet, in all places, oh God, extend your, your mercy. We need your mercy. 
and help us to live with wisdom. And oh God, this morning as we, as we now turn to continue on in our series in Genesis and to see both your providential hand in the life of Abram, Abraham, and also your covenant love, your radical love. God, open our hearts and our minds to hear what you have for each one of us here this morning. Amen. Would you, uh, would you open your Bibles to Genesis 15? And uh, at home, please be, feel welcome to do that too. We want you to join right in. Uh, I'm going to risk being really, really fragmented in my approach here today, obviously from dealing with such a heavy subject as coronavirus. I'm going to swing to the polar opposite end here, and I'm going to give you, going to give you a Bible text 101 academic lesson for about three minutes, okay, and no charge. I'm not going to, not going to charge anybody for this. Um, and I hope this is not distracting, but I hope it's helpful because we want to be intelligent when we're reading our Bibles. We want to be wise when we're reading our, the Word of God and coming to understand better as to, as to uh, what, it, what it says to us. And so, um, anyway, I'm going to take you into this brief lesson here. In, uh, in chapter 15. So, in the English language, <clears throat> we really only have two words for God. We have the word Lord, and we have the word God. But in the Hebrew language, which the Old Testament was written in, there are many names for God. In fact, as God was revealing himself to his people through the redemptive history, he was revealing himself by revealing his names. And as we read today's passage in a few minutes, you're going to see in your Bible two different cases. Most modern translations of the Scripture, you're going to find that there's two different cases of the way the word Lord is displayed in there. If you take a look at verse 1, chapter 15, verse 1, it's got Lord all in uppercase letters. L-O-R-D, all uppercase. 15, verse 2, you're going to notice that it's L. O-R-D, with this lowercase O-R-D. Now, in the Hebrew language, in this text, the word Lord in the small L-O-R-D is the word Adonai. Adonai means sovereign one. And the uppercase L-O-R-D in English is used for the name of God. Now, the name of God in, in Hebrew is Yahweh. And actually, we don't even know 100% for sure whether it is the name Yahweh. It's actually, it's actually scribed in the Hebrew text, Y-H-W-H. So it's, a, it's actually an abbreviation in there. It's known as the Tetragrammaton, just to be really technical here. But. And that's because the Hebrew, sorry, the Jewish scribes, as they were copying the text, they actually removed the vowels. You might find that, well, why would they remove the vowels and just leave the consonants? It's because they held the name of God to be so holy that they feared using it in vain. The third commandment that uh, God gives Moses uh, after he leads his people out of Egypt 
is do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And they took that so seriously, the unspeakable, ineffable name of God that they removed the vowels and just kept the consonants. Now it's assumed in translating the scriptures, we assume a couple of vowels to put in there to arrive at the word, at the name Yahweh. Sovereign is God's title. Yahweh is God's name. It's kind of similar to our head of state. So Queen Elizabeth, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth is our head of state for Canada, as she is for some other nations. And Queen is her title. Elizabeth is her name. In 15 verses 2 and 8, it literally in the Hebrew is Adonai Yahweh. It's a literal translation. In English, if we were to put it literal there, or used the same word, but just with the different cases, it would be Lord, Lord, which is kind of a little, little awkward, so they actually put Lord God. So, Steve, what's the significance of this? What does this matter? I hope that, it, first of all, it helps you to understand a little bit more as to what is in our English text. It's not a typeset error in your Bibles, it's there on purpose. And importantly, importantly today, we're seeing that, that Abram is the first one to use the name of God, Yahweh. And so let's, uh, let's turn to that passage and let's just take a few minutes to read it now. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, O sovereign Yahweh, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and accounted to him as righteousness. It's been several weeks, I think actually four weeks now since Pastor Terry had introduced us to Abram in chapters 12 and 13. And just to take a really lightning speed review of that, who was Abraham? Or Abram, I should say. Well, we're told that he was of the line of of Shem, who was the son of Noah, and came from the land of Ur, the Chaldeans. Not from a large family, only three boys. And that he was probably a sun or a moon worshiper. As Joshua 24, verse 2 says, that he and his father worshiped other gods beyond the river. Is Abraham somehow significant in and of himself? Some particular qualities that God was looking for, equipped to talents and skills and a polished resume? No, I don't think so. Other than he had a listening heart and a willingness to trust and obey. I believe the real significance about Abram 
is altogether the God who called him. And in these chapters, we've seen some unique methods of the way that God communicated with Abram. At this place in time, there were no sacred writings, there were no scriptures, there were no spoken words from prophets passed from generation to generation for God's people. In fact, there was no people of God yet. No patriarchs, none. Abram would be the first. So this is a unique time. And the way that God began to communicate with his people was unique from today. In 12 verse one, the Lord said to Abram, the Lord said to Abram, must have been verbal. The Lord appeared to Abram in verse seven of chapter 12, some sort of a physical manifestation. In 13, 14, the Lord said to Abram, another verbal encounter. And then here in, in chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Very unique, unique to that time and place. The promises of God came to Abraham 10 times, very interesting, 10 times through chapters 12 and 13. God says, I will, to Abraham. First of all, tells him to go, leave your country, your kindred and your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. In all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. To your offspring I will give this land. All the land that you see, I will give it to you. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth and then after he tells them to walk through the length and the breadth of the land he says I will give it to you chapter 15 opens a little bit different than any place that we've had so far in this three chapters that we've seen Abram the word of the Lord comes to him in a vision some sort of a visible manifestation whether in a dream or awake we don't know but it was a vision of God who called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And we see other scenarios of this throughout the Old Testament where the, an interaction with God or interaction with an angel of God, the first words are fear not. Fear not. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Now why would Abraham fear? What would he be afraid of? Well, he just helped rescue Lot from some kings who had taken him and his family captive and dragged them as far away as Damascus up in Syria. Maybe he was fearing retribution. Could be, but there's a time separation here. Right at the beginning of chapter 15, it says, after these things. I don't think it was so much a fear about these kings and the threat that might remain, but rather in the narrative with God, that we're gonna look at. It betrays the fact that there's a growing fear about the fulfillment of God's promises in his life. And that is those promises that his seed would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. God declares that Abraham should trust and not fear. 
for he would be his shield, his defensive armor to protect him and all that he has. And how timely for us today. How timely for us to hear the same words, fear not. Fear not. Fear not, White Ridge Baptist Church. I am your shield. And it came with a promise. Your reward will be very great. And this is the first verbal interaction that we hear of, of Abraham with, with God. He says, O Lord God, O sovereign Yahweh, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham's response indicates the depth of his concern about the lack of a son and heir, but it also indicates that he clearly had no doubts, no doubts about God's omnipotence by his addressing of God so personally. The 10 I wills, none of them were fulfilled yet, and it likely had been a series of perhaps for sure months, if not maybe a couple of years since he, had, since he had left Ur of the Chaldees. We don't know how many, but it's probably a few. And how quickly trust can erode. Matthew Henry in his self-named commentary published in 1706 says this, while promised mercies are delayed, our unbelief and impatience are apt to conclude them denied. While promised mercies are delayed, our unbelief and impatience are so quick, so quick to conclude that they're denied. Abraham had seen no fulfillment. Sarah wasn't pregnant. She was getting older, so was he. So he laid his complaint forth. But do you notice there's no response from God? Silence. So, what do you do when God doesn't respond? Reword it, I suppose. So he rewords it. And he says, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Though Abraham's initial question has a bit of a tone of whining to it, his second response to God is more matter of fact, more mature. And it's no longer a question, but a statement. He tenders to God a legitimate concern. And it was a well-known practice in Mesopotamia <clears throat> that if wealthy couples were childless, that they could adopt one of their slaves or servants to inherit their property and care for them in their old age. Eliezer of Damascus was probably one of Abram's most senior or chief servants and therefore the logical heir. But God now responds and confirms it's not going to be him. It's not going to be Eliezer. It's going to be a son of your own flesh. And I love, I love what God does to confirm it. He takes him outside. He takes him outside into the cool Canaan night with the stars filling the sky and he tells him, look up. Look up, Abram. See the stars. Number them if you can. Get a bigger perspective, Abram. See how great is the one who called you. See what I flung into place in the universe by the word of my power. Look up, Abram. See and believe. 
And oh, how desperately we need to have our perspective changed. Look up, see what God has done. See what he has formed in the universe. Go outside. Put down the tablet, put down the phone, turn off CNN and CBC, turn off the TV, turn off the radio, if anybody still listens to radios, and go outside. Go outside into God's creation and look up and see how big our God is. He who formed the universe, the planets, the sun, the moon, the stars. He who formed the trees, the plants, and vegetation out of nothing, ex nihilo, out of nothing. He who made the animals and birds and made them breathe. Who formed mankind from the dust of the earth in his own image and breathed his breath of life into him. See his creation. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Psalm 19, one to four. Wednesday night after come to the table, Barbara and I drove home <clears throat> and uh, she went in the house and I thought, I'm preaching on this on Sunday. Maybe I should <laughs> look up. We live out in the country, and so I walked away from the car, and, and in the chilly night air, looked up, and the stars were so bright. The moon, I think maybe it was a new moon, or the moon hadn't risen yet, and the stars were so brilliant. And just thinking, thinking about that, that moment when God called Abram to look up. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Anybody here in our big crowd here? Yeah. Okay, a few people have been to the Grand Canyon. When you go and stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, which, if you're my dad, you feel like jumping. <laughs> my dad has admitted that cliffs make him want to jump, so it's probably unadvisable for him to do that. Um, but you go there and you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and what, what's the thought that comes to mind? Oh, how big my problems are, or how great I am. No, no. Stood on the edge of that Grand Canyon a couple of years ago when we were there, and it's like, oh God. Oh God, how big you are. God doesn't have to get big, we just have to change our perspective and see God as he is. How big is your God today? Abraham looked up. He saw the greatness of what God had done, and faith was born. It appears that up to this time, Abraham was certainly hearing God, trusting God, obeying God, but now with absolute certainty, it turned into believing God. He may still have questioned, oh, well, God, how are you going to fulfill this promise? But now he certainly believed God's word as truth, and it was credited to him as righteousness. John J. Davis in his uh, commentary says, 
This reveals much more about the nature of true faith. It does not ignore natural processes, but it does recognize that God is superior to them all and can alter them to suit his purposes. That belief was counted. It was reckoned to Abram as righteousness. And the Apostle Paul refers to this. I'm not going to read this for the sake of time, but you can go to it, Romans 4, 2, and 3, and also Galatians 3, 1 to 6. This is the basis for Paul's argument that uh, as found in Abraham for the just basis for justification by faith alone. The fact that he was justified, that Abram was justified 14 years before he was circumcised is the basis for Paul's argument also that circumcision is a sign of belief and not the basis for justification. So, belief was born in Abraham and that belief was credited to him as righteousness. With the matter of an heir settled, God proceeded to reaffirm his promise of an inheritance, reminding Abraham that he had brought him out of Ur to make to this land as his inheritance. Again, unsure, he was, a little unsure about how it was going to be accomplished, Abraham asked, O Lord God, O sovereign Yahweh, second time, how am I to know that I shall possess it? I don't think this question is a lack of, about a lack of faith or an uncertainty in his faith so much. It was, there's requests in the Old Testament for confirmation, and I believe that's what this was. It was a request for confirmation, for a sign. Far from being doubt and unbelief, this was an expression of a heartfelt longing to see God's promises fulfilled. The covenant did not make him righteous. Rather, it was by his faith that he was reckoned righteous. Only after he had been counted righteous by his faith could Abraham enter into God's covenant. That by John Salehammer. Now, now begins this incredible scene <laughs> that fills the latter half of this chapter. God instructs Abraham to go to get a heifer, a female goat and a ram, all three years old, an eternal dove and a pigeon. That's all he tells them. No instructions on what to do with them, which I find fascinating. <laughs> Just tells them, go bring these. And Abraham proceeds to slaughter them in accordance with the animal blood sacrifices of nations around him. This having of the heifer, not to be Gross here this morning. Halfing of the heifer, the goat and the ram was stemmed astern, not midsection. So the two mirroring halves were laid opposite the other with a gap in between. The birds he leaves whole. Abraham waits expectantly now for God to show up, chasing away the birds of prey from the carcasses so they wouldn't be consumed. It's not a pretty scene. Probably pretty gross. In our refined 21st century, we probably find it quite repulsive. But in Abraham's day, this scene was common and set for something very significant to happen. You see, it was actually peace. This type of a, a sacrifice was used to, to seal peace treaties 
or significant contracts or covenants relationships. And it was designed that after they were sacrificed, the two parties that were making that agreement would walk together between the halves. Abram waits. As the sun going down, a deep sleep, something imposed from the outside of Abram fell upon him, a great and dreadful darkness. Have you ever felt darkness and fear in waiting for God? Matthew Henry says, holy fear prepares the soul for holy joy. Holy fear prepares the soul for holy joy. This is a serious, somber, heavy space in time as God begins to give Abram a glimpse of the future, a view that his offspring would be aliens in a land not theirs and would become servants in bondage for 400 years. But it's not just a view of slavery, but also of hope that one day they would leave that land with great wealth after God brings judgment. And he also let Abraham know that he would die in peace, buried at a good old age. And the paragraph finishes with a seemingly odd statement, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean? We know the story in its completeness from this side of history, but the conquest of Canaan under Joshua centuries later was not just a fulfillment of the promises made to Abram. It was also a judgment upon a nation and a people that was so wicked that God ordered them wiped off the face of the earth. None were to remain alive. But I also believe that in that judgment, God was showing his mercy and patience. Perhaps if the Amorites would have repented and turned from their sin, God would have spared them. After all, he was giving them more than 400 years to do so. We dare not push God with flagrant, willful sin. His patience does have a limit, and he will punish sin one day, and that judgment day is coming. So, the scene is still there. The sun is now set. Abram moves off to the side somewhere, and all of a sudden, this this appearance of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between the halves. This miraculous manifestation by God to confirm the covenant. John Davis again says, to visibly confirm his covenant, God condescended to the customary practice of walking between the divided parts of animals. The two parties of the covenant would pass between the pieces of the butchered animals to confirm their agreement. However, in the instance at hand, only God, in the form of a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, walked. Abram did not, because God's promises to him were unconditional. The symbols of God's presence were eminently appropriate, reflecting the awesome power and the absolute holiness of God. The smoking fire pot signified the affliction of, De- of Abram's offspring to happen in Egypt. Deuteronomy 4.20 says, But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. And Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, I have refined you, not as silver, 
I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. The burning lamp denotes comfort in affliction, the light of God's salvation, and perhaps a prefigure of the pillar of cloud and fire as God led his people through the wilderness. Isaiah 62.1 says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. Zechariah 12.6 This blood covenant sealed for Abraham and his offspring the everlasting promises of God as though already fulfilled. Notice verse 18 takes a different tense. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham to your offspring I give this land. Literally it is in the present tense I have given this land. See the promises of God to Abram are as good as done. And as God walked through those, those pieces, only he walked through, and that covenant was forever sealed and committed to Abram and his offspring, so Jesus went to the cross alone for us. And we now stand under the new covenant. So conclusion. Two thoughts. Sovereign choosing and sovereign election by God. First of all, that one. Sovereign choosing and election by God. The call and the promises of God were for one man and his descendants. That means many were not chosen. He was the one means that God chose to bless the nations of the earth, but in that choosing, many were left out. Do we have a problem sometimes with the sovereign choices of God? None of us deserve grace, though. None of us deserve mercy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were all enemies of God in an unredeemed street. State, pardon me. Rather thank him for his extended grace to us. And the sovereign choosing of God comes from the loving heart of God. Those two are not divorced in the mind of God. His sovereign choosing of his people comes from the sovereign loving heart of God. Covenant love. This gets really personal. Do you believe that God really loves you? I just want to ask you that question this morning for those of you online too. Do you believe that God really loves you? Now, don't your cognitive brain, <laughs> your higher reasoning power is immediately going to go to scripture and go, yes, God loves me. But in your heart of hearts, I want you to answer that question from your heart. Do you believe that God loves you? Or do you, like me, sometimes, feel that God just 
tolerates you. And that, if he were to be honest, maybe he really doesn't care for you. And he's just obligated because of all those promises he's made in Scripture. And that if somehow he were released from that, he would just pass you by. Was Abraham so uniquely different from you that God had special affection for him that he does not have for you? Or have you wandered too long in the distractions of the world? Or have you made life choices too broken to be redeemed or been wounded so deeply that the loving heart of God is not attractive to you? And as the worship team comes, I want to point out I want to point out a passage of scripture that I want to leave you with. At the end of Israel's never-ending cycle of idolatry and repentance, idolatry, repentance, idolatry, repentance. This wash, rinse, repeat cycle. This is what God says through Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah 32, 40 to 41, he says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and with all my soul. I want you to hear that this morning is that God's heart is for you today regardless of what is happening and transpiring in the world today, regardless of where your mind and your heart might be, regardless of the roads that you've walked, that God's heart is for you, that he wants to do you good. I will rejoice in doing them good with all my heart and all my soul. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. And today, today, maybe today you need to respond. Maybe you need to respond. And that response is repentance. Simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Mm -hmm.